Ave Maria Purissima, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today, on the first Sunday of Advent, we begin another liturgical year. The word Advent means a coming, an arrival. And throughout Advent, the Church prepares us for the coming of the Lord by placing before our eyes both the first coming of our Lord in mercy as the babe in the manger, and the second coming is put in front of us by our choice of readings to remind us of our year-long duty to always be in preparation for His coming in justice in the clouds of glory with His angels to judge the living and the dead. We'll start with a quick review. Today's Gospel is taken from that of St. Luke. He's recording the same incident that we considered last week, which was taken from St. Um, Matthew's Gospel. St. Mark also records the same incident. So our Lord and the Apostles are standing on Mount Olivet, and they're looking down at the temple. And the Apostles ask him two questions. One question about the destruction of the temple, one question about the end of the world. And then our Lord responds by answering both questions at the same time. So when he said that that generation would not pass till all things be done, as we see once again in today's reading, he's referring to the destruction of the temple, which did come to pass in AD 70 in that very generation. But again, there's more to it than that. Remember that a type is a person, a thing, or an action that actually exists, but it's also intended by God to prefigure or foreshadow a future person, thing, or action. So how does that apply to today's Gospel? Well, among other things, the Jewish people prefigure the Catholic people. The Jewish high priest prefigures the Pope. The Sanhedrin prefigures the cardinals and bishops. The Jewish priests prefigure the Catholic priests. The Jewish temple prefigures the Vatican, the Catholic Church, and the parishes throughout the world. And the city of Jerusalem prefigures uh, the, 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 the world. Now because the uh, temple is a type of the church, and the city of Jerusalem is a type of the world, the siege of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, are types of the end of the world. Which means that even when our Lord is talking about the siege of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, in AD 70, as he is in today's Gospel, he is also at the very same time speaking about the end of the world, but in a type, in a foreshadowing as a preview of upcoming events. Okay, so with all that as background, we'll take a brief look at some of the signs of the second coming at the end of the world. And to that end, we'll turn to a book treating this subject was written by an apostle, Apostle St. John. The book is the Apocalypse, otherwise known as the book of Revelation. I'll be relying heavily on various commentaries throughout, but most notably that one of Father Cornelius Lapide. He was a holy uh, Flemish Jesuit who spent some 40 years in the late 1500s and early 1600s writing a line-by-line -line commentary on the scriptures according to the minds of the fathers. I'm definitely relying on uh, quite a few other commentaries as well, at, at least 11, but it's, it'd be far too tedious in a sermon to cite them all. Um, it, it, now obviously, uh, well, as usual too, I've always uh, I've edited and cut and pasted the notes. Now obviously it's an enormous topic. Uh, even the notes for my sermon ended up over 100 pages before I finally whittled it down to this size. But in a sermon we can only hit a few points. And since it's prophecy, 
which has only finally understood its fulfillment, I may not have even expect, uh, selected the most important points. I may have, in fact, overlooked the best explanation. So at best, we're going to be left in a more luminous darkness. That being said, we'll do the best we can with what we've got. Now, a few preliminary notes. First, obviously, this is an exciting topic. But we're not supposed to have some kind of chicken little fit when we start thinking about it. The Holy Jesuit St. John Birchman gives us a perfect example of how we ought to react when we think about this topic, this very topic. One day during recreation time, St. John and his fellow uh, Jesuit scholastics were shooting pool. And one of them asked him, hey John, if you found out the world was just about to end right now, what would you do? And St. John was lining up a shot and he said, I'd keep shooting pool. Now what's the point of a story like that? St. John Birchman's was supposed to be taking recreation. And he was. And he's supposed to be in the state of grace. And he was. In other words, he's doing just what he was supposed to be doing at that moment. And the Lord expects us to be doing our duty when he comes again. So if we're in the state of grace and doing our duty, we're all right. Besides, no matter when God chooses to have someone live, he gives that person all the graces they need to become a saint at that particular moment in history. So the important thing is not when in history we live, but how we die. That's the most important thing. The most important thing we're going to do is die. We need to die in a state of grace. Then we're saved. Okay, next point. These days, there's tons of crazy things flying around about the end times. And just think when you finally stomp one out and it can't get any crazier, here comes another screwball theory or, or, or fake apparition. The teaching of the church is very clear. There is no such thing as the rapture. There is no such thing as this so-called millennium, a thousand-year visible reign of Christ our Lord. He came to us visibly the first time as a baby on his mission of mercy. That's Christmas. He'll come to us visibly and the second time at the end of the world as our judge. Two times. There's a first coming and a second coming. There's not one in between one. He's with us sacramentally in between those two companies. That's when he, so he comes as a baby, then he stays with sacramentally, then he comes to judge the living dead. There's not some crazy millennium where he's coming back and then he comes back again. There's not three, there's just two, okay? No rapture, no millennium. If you have any of that stuff around your house, open your door to wood stove, chuck it in, and slam the door. That's what you do with that kind of stuff. Now, if you want to read something good, on the other hand, Antichrist by St. Robert Bellarmine. This is a doctor of the church. Wrote a book about the Antichrist. Ryan Grant has recently translated it. So it's the first time it's been translated in English from Latin. This is reliable stuff. It's a doctor of the church writing what is the church teaching on the Antichrist, the end of the world. This is reliable. It's not some crazy cooked up screwball thing. You can read this, you'll be all right. I'm not telling you to read it, but it's a good book. And if you want to read something on that, this would be the one to read. Okay. Third, our Lord has commanded us to read the signs of the times. We're supposed to watch. If we hear anyone said when these future things are going to come to pass, we should remember the teaching of the Fifth Lateran Council. Quote, preachers are in no way to presume to preach or declare a fixed time for future evils. The coming of the Antichrist or the precise day of judgment. For truth says it is not for us to know the times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Let it be known. 
that those who have hitherto dared to declare such things are liars. And that because of them, not a little authority has been taken away from those who preach the truth. That's Lateran 5. That's the teaching of the church. So keep this in mind. Please do not put any words in my mouth as I'm going to try to be very precise in what I'm saying. This is a very difficult sermon for me to preach. Do not put any words in my mouth. Okay. Finally, don't forget that the most important thing is not when in history we live, but how we die. The most important thing is to die in a state of grace. That's what really, really matters. Okay. Now, as you'll recall, a few weeks ago, we looked at a thumbnail sketch of the events at the end of the world. Today, we're going to take a closer look at some of them and fill in a few more blanks. I just picked a few topics to consider. Last week, we considered the miracle of the sun as a sign of the end of the world. Now, last night, I realized after I'd written this sermon, and in no way intending to address the issue, that it's actually directly related to Fatima as well. In his monumental work on Fatima, the whole truth about Fatima, Frere Michelle, the Most Holy Trinity, reports that when questioned about the third secret, Sister Lucia said, it's in the Gospel of the Apocalypse. Read them. He notes that they then particularly indicated chapters 8 through 13 of the Apocalypse. And that happens to be the precise section of the book that this sermon is going to deal with. So let's get started. I'll read excerpts from the Apocalypse, then follow those with quotes from various commentaries. The Great Apostasy and the Operation of Error. Apocalypse 8, 10 and 11. And the third angel sounded the trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, burning as it were a torch. And it fell on a third part of the rivers, and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. Quote, As the third angel sounds his trumpet, a great star falls from heaven like a flaming torch and poisons a large portion of the streams and even their very sources. The name Wormwood denotes a bitter and poisonous nature. This vision is a striking image of unfaithful bishops and priests who fall from the firmament of the church where Christ has placed them to enlighten and direct the world. By false teachings and example, they poison the very sources of doctrine which should flow peers water from the mountain torrent. Unfortunately, many of the faithful drink from these poison streams of false doctrine and so perish. Close quote. Apocalypse 12, 3 and 4. And there was seen another sign in heaven. And behold, a great dragon having seven ten, head, heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Quote, The dragon is seen in heaven, which is here a symbol of the church, the kingdom of heaven on earth. This indicates that the first troubles of those days will be inaugurated within the church by apostate bishops, priests, and peoples. The stars dragged down by the tail of the dragon. Close quote. So the apostasy starts with the pastors. Let's make sure we understand our terms here. Apostasy means a baptized person completely rejects Christianity whole and entire. Either embraces a non-Catholic religion like Islam, or Buddhism, or Hinduism, or Satanism, or has no religion whatsoever. Heresy 
Heresy means a baptized person pertinaciously denies or doubts any revealed truth of the Catholic faith. In other words, he stubbornly denies the revealed truth even when he's been shown to be wrong. Nowadays, heretics are often called dissenters. Schism. Schism occurs when either a group or even an individual, while keeping the true faith, nevertheless voluntarily, knowingly, and deliberately separates himself from the unity of the church by refusing to submit to the authority of the Pope and or to remain in communion with those who are subject to him. Unlike apostasy and heresy, piercism is not a sin against the faith because the schismatic individual or group has maintained the faith. What they've done is cut themselves off from the vine. Over time, schism typically creeps into heresy because it becomes necessary to deny the primacy of the Pope. Okay, so the great apostasy starts with pastors, the bishops, and priests. There's a fascinating passage in the Catechism of the Catholic Church which speaks of this time. I quote, Before Christ's second coming, the church must pass through a final trial that will shake the faith of many believers. The persecution that accompanies her pilgrimage on earth will unveil the mystery of iniquity in the form of a religious deception, offering men an apparent solution to their problems at the price of apostasy from truth. The supreme religious deception is that of the Antichrist, a pseudo-messianism by which man glorifies himself in place of God and his Messiah come in the flesh. Close quote, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The church must pass through a final trial that will shake the faith of many believers in the form of a religious deception offering men an apparent solution to their problems at the price of apostasy from the truth. Apocalypse 8.12 and the fourth angel sounded the trumpet, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars. So the third part of them was darkened, and the day did not shine for a third part of it, and the night in the like manner. Quote, The thoughts of many hearts are being revealed more and more as the gospel is preached throughout the world. Many reject it, others abandon it. There's a growing decadence in the church. Its doctrine and sanctity shine with diminished luster. The day is less brilliant, the night of ignorance becomes darker. This is symbolized by the darkening of the sun, moon, and stars. Close quote. So over time, the rot sets in and the apostasy deepens. One alarming aspect of this time is what St. Paul calls the operation of error. We've talked about that in a great deal elsewhere. In short, during the great apostasy, which the popes have been specifically warning us about for over a hundred years, the world will be filled with people who are deliberately and obstinately resistant to the truth, who don't want to hear the truth because it hurts, because it means they're going to have to swallow their pride, because it means they're going to have to change their sinful and disordered ways of living and thinking. Men who want to live the way they want to live. Men who would rather have their leaders affirm them in their sins and lie to them than correct their false beliefs and vices and perhaps hurt their feelings. And the men who are seduced by these lies are seduced because they want to be seduced. Unfortunately, we're talking about the vast majority of men. The vast majority. Almost everyone. And in the midst of this chaos, the Antichrist will appear. And because he will put himself forth as the Messiah, because he's presenting himself as if he is the Christ, even though he's an absolutely diabolical counterfeit, 
in imitation of our Lord, who was preceded by and announced by the great prophet of God, St. John the Baptist, the Antichrist, this false Messiah, will be preceded by a false prophet. And as a just punishment for the rejection of the known truth, as a just punishment for their willful and stubborn blindness and error, God will permit the men who do not love the truth to have what they do want and what they do love, which is the lie. As a just punishment for the rejection of the known truth, as a just punishment for being seduced because they want to be seduced, God will permit them to have what they do want and what they do love, which is the lie. And so they'll be deceived by the false prophet and wind up following the Antichrist. And only a very few, a very small remnant, those who love and believe in the truth, will not be deceived by the marvels and the seduction of the Antichrist and his false prophet. It's terrifying. The false prophet... Apocalypse 9, 1 and 2. And the fifth angel sounded the trumpet. And I saw a star fall from heaven upon the earth. And there was given to him the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit. The next commentator will quote, seems to think all these things came to pass already in the destruction of the temple. Even though that's not correct. Nonetheless, as long as we keep in mind that he's writing of events which actually foreshadow events at the end of the world, his insights, which I've edited, can shed some light on this as well. As we read this, keep in mind again that the Jewish high priest prefigures the Pope, the Sanhedrin prefigures the cardinals and bishops, and the Jewish pre people prefigure the Catholic people. Quote, when the Messiah, Christ our Lord, finally appeared, the Jewish Sanhedrin turned the people of Jerusalem against him. The Sanhedrin's leader, the high priest, is the star that fell from heaven and poisoned the waters. He led the assault on the Messiah and encouraged the false prophets. In apocalyptic writings, stars usually denote earthly political leaders. The best interpretation is that this fallen star who opened the bottomless pit symbolizes the Jewish high priest who incited Nero to declare war and has already been described as a fallen star in the third trumpet. Now, given that the high priest prefigures the Pope, the Sanhedrin prefigures the cardinals and bishops, and Jewish people prefigure the Catholic people, that's very, very serious. We now turn to a commentary with an imprimatur. It's written almost 100 years ago. Quote, This vision marks a new period of exceptional gravity for the church. Any priest or bishop of the church who becomes the leader of heresy may be compared to a star fallen from heaven. But in this case, the star refers to some particular person whose revolt from the church shall lead directly to the reign of Antichrist. Close quotes. Okay, so in this vision, we have a star falling from heaven, we have a key, we have a bottomless pit. We'll take a closer look starting with the pit. That's mentioned again in chapter 20, when the dragon, the old serpent Satan, is cast into it. In the apocalypse, the word used here for the bottomless pit is the abyss. And that's used to describe the domain of the dragon and the prison of the devils. So the image here is that the abyss is being unlocked. It's being uncorked. And so the very bowels of hell are going to empty. And the demons which have been so far trapped in the depths are about to be freed on earth. Keep in mind all this is in the context of the great apostasy. The people of the new covenant, the Catholics who have been given the true faith, instead reject it. The members of the one true church reject that free and loving submission of their entire being to Christ. They refuse to recognize the sovereign rights that God has over them, and so they turn back to paganism. 
In other words, they turned back to the worship and the service of devils. The very devils that kept their ancestors in such terrible bondage until they were freed in Christ. But there's one huge, unbelievably terrifying difference between the paganism before Christ and the paganism of the great apostasy. Our Lord himself warned that if an evil spirit has been driven out but then invited back in, he will return. But he will bring with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they will dwell there, which means that the last condition is far, far worse than it had been. One example might give us some idea of the implications here. Not long before Our Lady converted them, the Aztec priests in Mexico, for just one feast, just one feast, sacrificed and offered up the hearts of 80,000 men to one of their pagan gods. 80,000 human sacrifices for one pagan feast. And if the Mexican people ever turn away from Christ as a church, and they are in droves, in droves, and if they ever turn back to paganism, and they are in droves, then that Aztec demon will return, and he'll bring with him seven other spirits more wicked than themselves. And we are talking about a demon that for one feast required 80,000 human sacrifices. And he is going to return, and he is going to bring with him seven other evil spirits more wicked than himself. And that will be true for every tribe and nation that turns away from Christ. And they're all going to turn away. Every last one of them. It's going to be like nothing ever seen in the history of the world. Like nothing we've ever seen. Lawlessness, chaos, perversions and obscenity, savagery and violence, chaos, lawlessness, like nothing we've ever seen. So the fallen star with the key is going to open the abyss, the domain of the dragon and the prison of the devils. And so the very bowels of hell are going to empty, and the demons who thus far have been trapped in the depths are going to be freed on earth. And it's going to be like nothing mankind has ever seen. Ever. Now there's an interesting Jewish legend about the abyss that has to do with a rock. Since ancient times, the Jews have called this particular rock the foundation stone. Among other things, they thought of it as a capstone, which basically plugs the opening of the abyss. In so doing, holds back the disorder and chaos from unrolled, prevents it from erupting out and floating over the world. When Solomon built his temple, this rock was actually part of the floor of the Holy of Holies. In fact, it was the very surface on which the Ark of the Covenant was placed. Nowadays, there's a huge mosque built right on top of that rock, and that's why it's called the Dome of the Rock. Our Lord had stated that the wise man builds his house on a rock. We all know who was the wisest man in the Old Testament. It was King Solomon. And just as King Solomon had built the temple on a rock, the foundation stone, so also our Lord, who said of himself that he was greater than Solomon, so also our Lord built his church on a rock, a living rock, a new foundation stone, St. Peter the Apostle. That's why our Lord changed Simon's name to Peter, which means rock. When we say something's become petrified, we mean it's turned into rock. 
In other words, our Lord said, Thou art rock, and on this rock I will build my church. So what the foundation stone was to the temple, St. Peter is to our Lord's church. In other words, the foundation stone is a type, it's a prefigurement of St. Peter. St. Peter is the foundation stone for the church of Jesus Christ. And when our Lord said the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, meaning his church, he was pointing out that his new foundation stone, the foundation stone of his church, St. Peter, is a new capstone, responsible for suppressing the disorder and chaos of the underworld and preventing it from erupting out and flooding over the world. The point is that St. Peter, the new foundation stone, has a crucial role in plugging the abyss and preventing all hell from breaking loose. Okay, and when our Lord changed Simon's name to Peter and made him the new foundation stone, he also gave him keys, right? Why? That great doctor of the church, St. John Chrysostom, explains that when Christ gave these keys to Peter, the care and government of the whole world was committed to him. So the image here is really easy to understand, since back in the olden days, cities had walls with gates. So be given the keys to a city meant be given a, a position of very great trust and honor, and responsibility in terms of safeguarding the people, right? The man with the keys can open or shut to whom he wills. He can lock the gate to keep the enemies out, or he can betray the people and unlock the gate and let the enemy in. That's the power of the keys. All that by way of background. Now, keeping all that in mind, let's walk back through that passage from the Apocalypse. And the fifth angel sounded the trumpet. And I saw a star far from heaven upon the earth. And it was given him the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit. Let's hear the explanation one more time, which in this case was taken from that commentary with an imprimatur from almost 100 years ago. Quote, This vision marks a period, a new period of exceptional gravity for the church. Any priest or bishop of the church who becomes the leader of heresy may be compared to a star fallen from heaven. But in this case, the star refers to some particular person whose revolt from the church shall lead directly to the reign of Antichrist. Close quotes. What all this seems to indicate is that during the great apostasy, a particular bishop who has been given the keys is going to play a terrible role in opening the abyss. And this action will lead directly to the reign of of the Antichrist. A particular bishop has been given the keys. He's going to play a terrible role in opening the abyss. And this action will lead directly to the reign of the Antichrist. And it's going to be like nothing we've ever seen. We continue. Apocalypse 9, verse 2 and following. And he opened the bottomless pit. And the smoke of the pit arose as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke of the pit. And from the smoke of the pit there came out locusts upon the earth. And power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth had power. And they had over them a king, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek Apollyon, and Latin exterminans. Quote, from the smoke of the pit comes form a swarm of locusts which attack men. They are fitting image of demons, heretics, and apostates who swarm over the earth spreading spirits of destruction far and wide. Close quote. It reminds us of the plague of locusts 
that Moses called down in the pagan land of Egypt, which also darkened the sky. By this point, the state of human society is essentially reduced to lawless chaos. It's going to be like nothing we've ever seen. In a later vision, St. John sees two beasts. The first beast, the Antichrist, comes up from the sea. We'll get to him in a while. And the second beast, the false prophet, comes up from the land. Apocalypse 13.11. And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb. And he spoke as a dragon. And all the authority of the first beast, it exercises before him. And he causes the earth and those dwelling in it to worship the first beast. Quote, St. Irenaeus, Tertullian, and others take this beast to be a notorious deceiver who shall be the precursor and herald of the Antichrist after the fashion of Christ, who had St. John the Baptist as a precursor. The false prophet will preach and promote the Antichrist with great signs, close quote. And quote, the beast arising from the earth is a false prophet, the prophet of Antichrist. Our divine Savior has a representative on earth and the person of the Pope upon whom he has conferred full powers to teach and govern. Likewise, Antichrist will have his representative in the false prophet who will be endowed with a plenitude of satanic powers to deceive the nations. Close quote. Coming up out of the earth. Quote, the earth whence comes the second beast is a symbol of the Gentile nations in revolt against the church. Close quote. What does it mean to say the beast came up out of the earth? If we look at the Greek word that St. John used here, we see that the sense is that it refers to the land. So this might be better translated the beast that comes up from the land, who caused the land and those dwelling in it to worship the first beast. So what's the point of that? When the Greek Old Testament refers to someone who comes from the land, or someone who dwells in the land, obviously it refers to people that live in the Holy Land. But it's an expression that actually means something more than that. It's got a very specific meaning. It's an idiom. So we have the same sort of thing in English. When we say kick the bucket, obviously it could mean kicking a bucket. But in general, as we all know, it usually means something else. It means dying, right? So when the phrase to dwell in the land is used in the Old Testament, there's a real sense of foreboding. You wouldn't get that unless you know the idiom. It's foreboding. It means the people of the Old Covenant had apostatized and become pagans and were about to be destroyed or driven out of the land. Or it refers to the heathens like the Canaanites who originally were living there. And it means they're about to be destroyed and driven out of the land. So when we have that phrase, dwell in the land, it has a sense of foreboding, like there's destruction going to happen. There's apostasy and destruction. That's what that, that has carries with it. Okay, that's the Old Testament sense of the phrase. As we know, the people of the Old Covenant foreshadow the people of the New and Everlasting Covenant. We're reminded that at the consecration of the precious blood at every holy mass. Okay, with that as background, it's pretty easy to understand the sense of this phrase. So when we hear the beast coming out from the land, the false prophet, who caused the land and those dwelling in it to worship the first beast, it tells us that the people of the New Covenant, the Catholics, have apostatized become pagans, and that they and their pagan neighbors are about to be destroyed, certainly at a spiritual level, and that the false prophet, who is himself apostatized from the Catholic Church, is by means of his preaching marvels going to seduce the apostate Catholics and their pagan neighbors into following his leader, the Antichrist. And he had two horns like a lamb. Our Lord specifically warns that we should, quote, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, quote, quote. Quote, these two horns give the appearance and simulation of a meek holiness, that he would appear to be a lamb. And he can perform great signs so he would appear to be a miracle worker. He can unite men 
to draw multitudes over to the sect and yoke of the Antichrist. It seems, therefore, that this false prophet should be some apostate bishop, a hypocrite and traitor to ecclesiastical honors, who with his preaching will fill the people with the poison of the dragon. Close quote. Quote, the two horns denote a twofold authority, spiritual and temporal. As indicated by the resemblance to the Lamb, the prophet will probably set himself up in Rome as a sort of anti-pope. Close quote. And he spoke as a dragon. Quote, how does the dragon speak? He uses deceptive, subtle, seductive speech to draw God's people away from their faith and into a trap. Furthermore, he's a liar, a slanderer, and a blasphemer. Close quote. End quote. His doctrine shall be cunning, deceitful, poisonous, and diabolical, and therefore most apt for deceiving men. For just as the dragon, that is the devil, deceived Eve by speaking through the mouth of the serpent, so also he will speak through the mouth of this false prophet. In all the authority of the first beast, it exercised before him, and he causes the earth and those dwelling in it to worship the first beast. So the false prophet, who's propped up by the power and authority of that first beast, acts as the chief liturgist, theologian, and preacher for his master, the Antichrist. Quote, again, commentary hundred years ago, imprimatur. Antichrist, his prophet, will introduce ceremonies to imitate the sacraments of the church. In fact, there will be a complete organization, a church of Satan, set up in opposition to the church of Christ. Satan will assume the part of God the Father, Antichrist will be honored as Savior, and his false prophet will usurp the role of Pope. Their ceremonies will counterfeit the sacraments, and the words of magic will be heralded as miracles. Close quote. The Antichrist. Apocalypse 13, 1 and following. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten diadems, and upon his heads names of blasphemy. And the dragon gave him his own strength and great power. And all the earth was in admiration after the beast. And they adored the dragon, which gave power to the beast. And they adored the beast, saying, Who is like to the beast? And who shall be able to fight with him? And there was given him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given him to do two and forty months. And he opened his mouth on blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwelt in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And all that dwell upon the earth adored him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. Quote, in certain scriptures, the sea is associated with the abyss, the abode of the demons who are imprisoned there. The picture of the raging deep is also used in Scripture as a symbol of the world in chaos for the rebellion of men and nations against God. For example, in Isaiah 57.20 we read, quote, The wicked are like the raging sea which cannot rest, and the waves therefore cast up dirt and mire. St. John is told later that the waters which you saw are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten diadems, and upon his heads names of blasphemy. Quote, as a representative of Satan, Antichrist will be aided and abetted by the same kings and rulers symbolized in both instances by the horns and diadems. The horns are branded with names of blasphemy. Hence, they symbolize the sins and errors that will afflict the church. Seven, the number of universality, indicates that in this final struggle to prevent the universal reign of Christ, all forms of sin and error will be marshaled against the church. The number seven is also appropriate since all sins are included in the seven capital sins. In like manner, all errors that have afflicted the church may be summed up in these seven. Judaism, paganism, Arianism, Mohammedism, Protestantism, rationalism, and atheism. Close quotes. 
And the dragon gave him his own strength and great power. Quote, the dragon gave the Antichrist first his authority and majesty, secondly, permission and every means to persecute the faithful, thirdly, the skill, powers, and power of deceiving, fourthly, the power to do fake miracles through sorcery, through the revealing of hidden things, and through the semblance of raising the dead, etc. So all the fathers teach the Antichrist will be the most incredible sorcerer that ever lived, learned in witchcraft spells of black arts. He'll be possessed by the devil from his conception, or at least from his infancy. He'll perform all his marvels by satanic power. He'll appear to raise the dead and heal the sick, but these will be demonic illusions. Why will the Antichrist perform all these marvels? St. Robert notes that the purpose of all these fake satanic wonders will be so that he can prove that he's God, just as Christ our Lord did true miracles to demonstrate his divinity. So he'll do these miracles so he can convince everybody that he's the Christ, so he can convince everybody that he's God. He'll deny that Jesus is the Christ and institute Jewish laws. He will proclaim himself to be Christ and God and will demand to be worshipped as such and will attack all other gods, even the true God. And power was given him to do two and forty months. Quote, all Orthodox Catholic commentators teach this means he will rule for three and a half years. Close quote. It was given unto him to make war with the saints to overcome them. Quote, to subjugate, capture, and kill them. It will be the most savage persecution in the history of the world. Nothing else even comes close to it. And power was given him over every tribe, people, and tongue, and nation. In other words, he'll rule the world. And all that dwell upon the earth adored him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb. All that dwell upon the land adored him. There's that foreboding expression again. All those about to be destroyed. All those about to spend eternity in hell. All those men who deliberately, obstinately resist the truth. Who don't want to hear the truth. Because it hurts. Because it means they'll have to swallow their pride. Because it means they'll have to change their sinful, disordered ways of living and thinking. Because it means that they have to change themselves. Men who want to live the way they want to live. Men who'd rather have their leaders affirm them in their sins and lie to them than correct their false beliefs and vices and perhaps hurt their feelings. And the men who are seduced by these lies are seduced because they want to be seduced. And as a just punishment for the rejection of the known truth, as a just punishment for their willful and stubborn blindness and error, God will permit the men who don't love the truth to have what they do want and what they do love, which is the lie. As a just punishment for the rejection of the known truth, as a just punishment for being seduced because they want to be seduced, God will permit them to have what they do want and what they do love, which is the lie. And so they will be deceived by the false prophet. Why not fall in the Antichrist and adore him? All that dwell in the land whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb. That's almost everybody in the world at that time. In his book on the Antichrist, that great doctor of the church, St. Robert Bellman, states that there are two most certain facts about him. He's principally coming for the Jews and will be received by them as the Messiah. Secondly, he will be born of Jewish stock and circumcised and observe the Sabbath at least for a time. As our Lord stated to the Jews, you have rejected me, but another will come in his own name, and him you will not reject. St. Robert also points out a fearful symmetry. Just as Christ first came to the Jews, to whom he was promised, and by whom he was expected, and then later joined the Gentiles to himself, so also the Antichrist will first go to the Jews, to, by whom he was expected, and later, one after another, he will subject all the Gentiles to himself. He points out that the Antichrist is not the devil incarnate, 
Because the devil can't take on another nature. Only God can do that. The devil is an angel. He can only possess a man. Quote, he would be the most perfect instrument of the devil, so that in him is the bodily expression of all possible diabolical malice, just as in Christ our Lord was the bodily expression of all divine goodness. Close quote, St. Robert. In terms of his name, we all know the number of his name is 666. St. Robert quotes St. Irenaeus at some length on this topic. In short, his name is a secret kept by God until the Antichrist arrives, since he isn't worthy to have that name pre-announced by heaven. St. Irenaeus reports that St. John the Apostle warns that no one should attempt to guess this name from the number. Those who try will be easily deceived by him when he arrives under his own name, since they will not be on guard against him. Let's close. Quote, As St. John Chrysostom, St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, St. Jerome say, Nero is a remarkable type and figure of the Antichrist, because he was unbelievably proud, incredibly perverse, incredibly powerful, absolutely wicked ruler. Nero was a complete tyrant, just as the Antichrist shall be. He wished to be worshipped as a god. He supported and, and, and sponsored Simon Magus and other evil sorcerers. He was an enemy of Christ and Christians. He raised up their first psalm persecution. The same spirit which already moved and operated Nero and similar tyrants will operate in Antichrist himself, the head and prince of total iniquity. Close quote. Nero is a type of the Antichrist. This is a man that the fathers and doctors have always been considered to be a very clear type of the Antichrist. He's raised up in a murderous family. He carried out that legacy by murdering his own mother, stepbrother, wives and child, among countless others. He's a sorcerer and associated himself with wizards and sorcerers and consulted demons to guide him in making decisions. He's a shameless, murder, murderous pervert who, besides his wives, had a number of the new politically correct sort of marriages. He spent money like it's going out of style, lived in absolutely outrageous style. He ordered the burning of Rome and then blamed the Catholics and persecuted the church for 42 months, killing Catholics with crucifixions and horrible tortures, even pouring pitch on them and burning them alive to use his torches to eliminate his garden during parties at night. This is a man who demanded to be worshipped as God and killed those who refused to do so. The same spirit which already moved and operated Nero and similar tyrants will operate in the Antichrist himself, the head and prince of total iniquity. In all that dwell in the land adored him, whose names are not written in the book of the life of the Lamb.